Hello, good morning, good morning and welcome to Faithfully Memphis. This is Tom Momberg along with Emily Austin and we represent the Episcopal Diocese of West Tennessee. Every Thursday at 8 a.m., our bishop, Phoebe Rofe, and many other hosts have the opportunity to speak with interesting people and to learn about the role that faith plays in their lives. We're broadcasting live from WYXR 91.7 FM in Memphis, Tennessee. Here on Faithfully Memphis, we always begin with honoring a saint of the day. Today's saint was officially remembered on Monday, this past Monday, December 6th. He's Nicholas, whom we know as St. Nicholas, or Santa Claus. Nicholas was a bishop in the maritime city of Myra in what is now modern Turkey during the time of the Roman Empire. He was made a saint in the 6th century. St. Nicholas is the patron saint of Listen to this list. Sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, brewers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people, students in various cities and countries around Europe. But to most people, Nicholas would be known, of course, as the patron saint of children. Mm-hmm. His legendary habit of secret gift giving. Anybody out there a secret gift giver? Gave rise to the many traditions we know about St. Nicholas, including little gifts that are left for little ones at night in their shoes. Imagine discovering something wonderful in your shoes in the morning. St. Nicholas' name was brought to this country by Dutch colonists in New York. They called him Sinterklaas. We, of course, call him Santa Claus. And so here's the prayer that collects up how we honor St. Nicholas. And let us pray. Almighty God, in your love you gave your servant, Nicholas, a perpetual name for deeds of kindness both on land and sea. Grant, we pray, that your church may never cease to work for the happiness of children, the safety of sailors, the relief of the poor, and the help of those tossed by tempests of doubt or grief. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Emily. Um, And uh, we're going to welcome our special guest here in a moment. But before we do, I want to just uh, also let you know that the gospel lesson that's appointed for St. Nicholas Day includes these familiar words from the Gospel of Mark. Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, 
for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Mm. And in this season of Advent, as we prepare to remember the birth of Jesus, whom Christians know as the Christ child, I believe we need to pray, especially for children who need some extra help and some extra care. And we give thanks today for all the organizations, including churches and other communities of worship, who make a difference in the lives of children this time of year especially. Amen. So today, our special guest is someone I've had the honor and privilege to know for the past several years, and also had the honor and privilege of talking with on Faithfully Memphis some months ago, John Ashworth. Good morning, John. Good morning, Tom. Good morning to everyone. How are you this morning? I'm doing great, and I'm glad to see you are uh, still vacationing. I am. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, folks, for those of you who don't know, John Ashworth is the president of the board of the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis. That's how I've come to know him. And John is also the president of another organization that has to do with children. Although he told me he's not the president, he's the co-founder. What's that situation, John? Co-chair. Co-chair. Okay, tell us about that organization, John. I am the very proud co-chairman of the Ashbury Center for Exceptional Grandchildren. Oh. And that's my, that is my most important role in life, as I often say to people. I am at the emeritus stage of life, and that's the job that I take most seriously. We are, we are so happy to hear that you are still taking it seriously. How many grandchildren do you have? I have nine grandchildren and two great-grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Well, we need to pray for you too, it seems, as well as uh, your good, your good beloved wife, Shar. Yes. Um, well, uh, John, um, we, as I mentioned, we met each other while we were working together uh, within the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis organization, which, for those who don't know, is an organization that has to do with racial healing and justice here in Shelby County, especially. And I'm just wondering if you would say a word about how you remember us first meeting. Yes. Um, as you said, we met as a result of both of our efforts with the Lynching Sites Project of Memphis. And I think it was in 2000, I'm going to say I think it was in 2018, uh, early 2018, that we had an occasion, uh, as you know, Tom, we collect soil from the site of victims that were actually lynched. We go to the actual lynching site and we collect soil there to become a part of the Equal Justice Initiative Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. And it was at that site when we were collecting soil from the site that Thomas Moss, Stewart, and Dow uh, were lynched. Uh, and I think that's that's when we first, that's the first time we met each other. I think uh, it was a very solemn ceremony, mm-hmm. uh, and that was my first time of actually presiding over one because this was this is a fairly new thing that we're doing in the country. Period. Yes, yes, and it was new to me, brand new to me, and um, my colleague, my fellow Episcopal priest, Laura Geddes, was the one yes. who invited me to that uh, service, that ceremony, and uh, I participated in it. 
um, as as one of the clergy there. And so uh, I got kind of thrown into the deep end of the pool right away uh, when I first started getting involved. And then you and I also went to the opening in April of 18 of the Equal Justice Initiatives Museum and Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. So I think that it didn't take us long to get to know each other. No, it didn't. Uh, you know, be, I mean, you know, you we're both experiencing something that the country has never really dealt with in any real tangible way of just recognizing what actually the horror of what actually happened. And I yes. think you and I, along with uh, Carla Peach and Ryan from LSP, uh, Randy Gamble, a few other uh, members were all there together. And I think we we all experienced the EJI initiative. There's nothing like it in the country. Uh, I think we all experienced that together, and it was a very moving moment. It was a very, very moving moment for all of us. I mean, we learned we learned a lot more about each other, um, and and we did a lot of bonding over that. We we really did. There were a good half a dozen or more of us from uh, LSP Lynching Sites Project uh, right. of Memphis who were there, and that's how I really began to know the the individual people in the organization in a deeper way and came away convinced that I needed to be more involved. And um, and then it didn't take long for, for you, my friend, to convince me to uh, be willing to serve on the board of the Lynching Sites Project. And so in June of 19, uh, I came onto the board. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I, I think uh, I would not have been on the board um, without several people suggesting I serve, but you were the one who really encouraged me strongly. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm grateful for that, John. I don't know well, that I would I, have done I'm, it. I'm grateful, I'm, and I'm grateful for the fact that you did, because you know one of, one of the more difficult things, while all of us are well-intentioned, being able to really, really embrace in a real, real way, if that makes sense, um, what race relations are in this country, especially when you embrace the racial terrorism that occurred, uh, it's very difficult to have authentic voices. And I think you and I were able to forge that um, to where we could get to the point where we could really, really have honest conversation without the shame, the pain, the blame, the yes. guilt, and all that that goes with it. And I think that's so important. Yeah, and uh, what I was going to say about our friendship, and you know this story mm-hmm. because you were part of it, um, but and you know how important it is to me, but it really wasn't until... Um, the that year in in nineteen two thousand nineteen, um, that um, you and I became friends in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I invited you to come to Scottsboro, Alabama, where I was serving a small <laughs> church. You're laughing because yes. you know how how funny this yeah. story is in a way, uh, because <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the things you learned about me is that I had never invited a person of color to spend the night in my house or my apartment yeah. until I invited you. Yeah, yep, I, I remember that. You know, and I, and I think that makes such an important point. Uh, we talk a great deal about relationships and friendships across racial lines, and we're quick to say I have good friends who are different from me, but I've always said to me the two, to me the real test of whether or not the relationship is as genuine as people think it is, is, and I would say this to anyone, regardless of your ethnicity, have you invited someone 
who is different from you to sit at your table without it being a birthday party, a special occasion, or to spend the night in your home. Yes. Uh, if you can pass that test, and I think you probably are getting very close to where you need to be. I know a lot of us visit in each other's home for people who are different because it's a Christmas party, it's a birthday party, it's all that other stuff. But when you can do it out of genuine friendship, then I think you'll begin to get close to where you need to be. Yes, yes. And that's and one indication anyhow. Yeah. It, I think absolutely. And it really has taught me about that fact that since that time, I have been, along with my wife, very intentional about thinking about who are we inviting into our home and for what right. reason. Uh, right. Something very simple, but something mm -hmm. very important, especially mm -hmm. for us white folks who may, may maybe never really thought about how significant that could be for everyone uh, in, those, mm -hmm. in those moments. Um, you know, I don't know if it's because it's a basic human need, but there's something about breaking bread with people, even oh, if they're yeah. the same ethnicity, but there's something about having a meal with another human being that has some intrinsic value. And mm -hmm. I may be reading more into this than I should, but that's just kind of my sense um, of what that's really all about. When you sit across from each other and you sit with people, and break bread with them. That's that's a do it genuine. That's a very important thing. And uh, I I can't help but you know I'm I'm a pretty musical guy as you know, and <laughs> right. I can't help but think about another spiritual that's popular in the Episcopal Church. Let us break bread together on our knees, and it's about mm -hmm. it's about sharing communion in mm -hmm. in uh, in church, but mm -hmm. there are a whole bunch of ways to share communion inside mm -hmm, the church mm -hmm. and outside the church. And mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. so uh, anyway, um, I wanted to be sure and mention that little piece of our shared story of friendship um, and mm -hmm. how we kind of took things to a deeper level when you came to Scottsboro. And also you shared, I just want to mention this, and you can say whatever you might like to say about it, but you mentioned something about your ancestors and had a document about your ancestors that was very powerful and meaningful to the people in that church? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, uh, and I don't know if you had a chance to see the video, but it's, it's one of the things that I talked about, um, that, I, that I talked about. I know where the name Ashworth came from because I have the actual bill, a copy of the actual bill of sale of my great Grand, uh, my great-grandfather that was sold when he was nine years old. Uh, and so I'm able to trace the name Ashworth. I can start from 1852 when he was sold. I can find him in the census of the man who purchased him, Jasper Ashworth, uh, as a 17-year-old. And I can find him again after the war is over, after the Civil War is over, and he's now married. And the lady that he's married to, uh, a lady by the name of Ann, is the same name that my grandfather told me his mother's name was. So I'm able to trace that all the way down, and that's, that is very important to me. Yes, and I've seen that interview now, John, and, and um, it's fabulous. And I, I, I will commend it to everyone I know uh, because there's a lot more about your ancestors. And I will just say this, that one of the, thing that, one of the things I've learned about African-American life and culture is you honor your ancestors. Those words are used and those things are done every time a gathering now for lynching sites project happens and other 
organizations honoring ancestors, which which leads me to another question that I want to uh, have us talk about uh, for a little while, because we talked about this yesterday at some length, mm-hmm. how mm-hmm. our childhoods, you and I, how our childhoods were different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just going to start by saying that I never thought of my childhood as, as being particularly privileged or well-resourced, <laughs> but okay. I do now. I do now okay. because I, I am, I'm the oldest of five children, and uh, I used to be out in the backyard playing and singing. And one of the things I told mm-hmm. you is that we had a swing set, and I would swing on the swing and sing, singing and swinging. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I would also... Um, build uh, tree houses and uh, excavate caves in the vacant lot next door. <laughs> and I had the luxury okay. of doing all that because my family was able to live in a house with that kind of property. Mm-hmm. You grew up in a different kind of way. Would you say some things about your growing up yes. in childhood? Yes. I um, um, I grew up, uh, as I said, out in the country with my grandparents. It was out in a very rural portion of what is now Wilson County. Of course, it's not nearly as rural today as it was then. In fact, it's almost getting incorporated into the city. But long story short, as you and I talked, uh, you know, you talked about the swing that you had in your yard. And I talked about after my um, when uh, on up until I was in about the sixth or seventh grade, we didn't have electricity, although my grandfather owned a, a farm. We had a pretty good sized farm, you know, I mean, back in that day. Uh, and so I had that entire forest to run through to play with, but that was a area. And, and my grandfather, after we got electricity, my uncle gave my grandfather a television. And mm-hmm. one of the shows that was on there that I looked at as a child was Tarzan. And here's Tarzan <laughs> swinging through the jungles with the animals. And I thought, wow, that's great. You know, I mean, I'm a kid growing up. Mm-hmm. And on the farm, there was a little area where I had, there were some trees and there were vines that grew there. And as I recall, the vines may have been. In my mind now, they were like two inches thick. They're probably no more than a half inch thick if that long because I was a kid. Hmm. But I got the idea one day that it would be great to go out there and swing through these vines the way I saw Tarzan doing it on TV. And so <laughs> I went out and I cut one of those vines so I could swing on it. And I had a great time swinging back and forth from that tree. And I went back about, <laughs> I don't know, three or four weeks later and decided to have that same swing again. As a child, without realizing, when you cut the van, you killed it. Of course, when I grabbed and started swinging, with bad leg going to the tree, and down I went. <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, even though I, we didn't have the kinds of resources that you had, uh, it was a very different experience. You yeah. know, you talked about building caves, and, and you know, my cousin and I, we had uh, the entire woods and countryside to run through, and mm. we did. Mm. But it was a very different experience, yes. And you told me yesterday you ran through it barefoot. Yes, I did. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, uh, we lived in a rural area. In fact, I went to uh, my early years, I went to a school that was called the Rosenwald School. And that's mm-hmm. another story with that with Julius Rosenwald and Booker T. Washington. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, on the last day of school, my cousins and I, as soon as we got off the bus from school, we went in the house and pulled our shoes off. Uh, and went barefooted for the rest of the summer. And in a matter of probably less than 24 hours as a child, I mean, your feet toughen up. Uh, and you'd run through the woods. You'd run up and down a rocky road, mm. uh, barefooted, uh, no problem whatsoever. Wow. You know, you learn how to adapt. And, you know, and the interesting thing about that 
uh, is that you realize that mankind started, mankind did not start out with shoes. <laughs> he started out with bare feet. You know, and so oh. you begin to understand that. My goodness. Well, um, uh, John, you're right. We had some real differences in our childhood, but we had some similarities <laughs> too. We talked about the similarity of loving to read. And I told yes. you that I used to have a flashlight in bed after the lights were turned out by my parents, I'd grab my flashlight and go under the covers and pull my books out to read. And I know you mm -hmm. loved reading as a child too. I do. It's it's one I don't know I don't know what gravitated me. I did very well in school. It was a one room school with, you know, the typical uh at that time uh a separate grade in each row. Mm, mm. But I developed a great love of reading and one of the early things that I, I, for some reason, aligned with or, or just took up was a love of poetry. And, and as I shared with you the other day when we talked, one of the poems, as I told you the story about my, my cousin and I going barefooted, I read, very early I ran across the poem Barefoot Boy. Mm -hmm. And when I read that poem, it was almost as though that writer uh, in my mind living out in the country going barefoot was speaking to me. I mean, you know, the lines of the poem, Blessings on thee, little man, barefoot boy with that cheek of tan, with that turned up pantaloons and that merry whistle tunes. And I was a great whistler, as I shared with you. Yes. And so that 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 poem, because, and, and maybe it was that poem that so captured who I was at that moment. Um, maybe that's that's the thing that continued to lead me to look at poetry. Even to this day, I still mm. like poetry. Mm. You know, a little bit later, I mean, because kind of the theme of what we're talking about uh, as we love community, I want to share a line with you from one of the points, but please go ahead. Now, actually, would you please, and I didn't say something about that theme that you and I have been talking about, and the theme is becoming beloved community, which, of course, is the phrase that has become so familiar to so many because of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s words, mm -hmm. but becoming beloved community, one friendship at a time. Right. And um, um, say something more about Beloved Community and poetry. Yeah, I, uh, uh, the, the thing that I want to say about the Beloved Community and poetry, uh, as I said, I developed a love for poetry very early on. Uh, and certainly, I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a veteran, uh, 21 years. I, I spent all of 1967 in Vietnam and came home uh, and reporting to Fort McPherson, Georgia in, 19, in January of 1968. And of course, shortly after that, Dr. King got killed. And, you know, from that, and we talk about, you know, his idea about the beloved community. And, and in some way, um, uh, that certainly fashion, I've always thought about that, even from my childhood, uh, as I share with you, my mother passed, which is why I grew up, my passed from my birth, uh, which is why I grew up with my grandparents. But to bring that, uh, down to where I am in the poem that I want to share. In, in 1968, my wife and I and two of our young children uh, at the time, the third one hadn't, the fourth and the third and fourth hadn't been born. Uh, we were out shopping, and I ran across this this, and I love music, and I ran across this album by a man by the name of Arthur Prysock. Uh Some of your listeners may know him. He, of course, he's deceased now. Uh, not of the this later generation, but that was, but the album, the title of the album was This Is My Beloved. Uh, and, and very quickly, I want to share just a few lines from that, from that poem. Please. The thing about it is that Prasak recites the poem and it is set to music and it's, it really is a class, but this is what it says. 
Because hate is legislated, written into the primium, the testament, shot into our blood and brain like vaccine or vitamins. Because our day is of time, of hours, and the clock hand turns, closes the circle upon us, and black timeless night sucks us in like quicksand, receives us totally, without a rain check or a parachute, a key to heaven or the long of the last long look. I need love more than ever now. I need your love. Mm. I need love more than hope or money, wisdom, or a drink. And I think, and the poem, wow. the poem goes on in that theme. But I think that that those lines maybe spoke to me in a way that that maybe was tied with my childhood. It was poetry. I thought it was a beautiful poetry. Uh, it spoke from a romantic standpoint, but I think it also spoke to just the need that humanity has to be loved. Uh, that's that's a basic. Uh, I think that's a basic human need, and I think a lot of the problems that we share, and of course you're out of the the um, faith community, but I think it is this lack of love that we in fact have, this lack of recognizing our humanity. But that, but that's just one of those poems that kind of spoke to me in that way, if that's making any sense. Oh, yes. Yeah, and John, two things I'm thinking about. One is um, that a beloved community begins with two people. Yes, it does. Uh, and, yes, it does. and whether it's a, uh, you know, a, a marriage partnership, uh, or two friends, uh, right. or even a parent and child, um, right. a grandparent and child. I mean, just it begins with at least two people. And the the other thing I wanted to mention um, is that you know Jesus uh, is known for saying, uh, whenever two or three are gathered together. Uh, you are you are together in my name, and so right, for Christians, right. uh, commun- beloved community is being with at least one or two other people, and uh, and the reality of the beloved community, uh, the need for that in 2021, 2022, is so mm-hmm. profound. We know this. It's very profound. Yeah, and um, and what I would say about that is that whether we are. Uh, within a faith community or not, um, I think it's it's hard to find people who would disagree with that need, that mm-hmm. need for mm-hmm. some kind of community to mm-hmm. keep us healthy and whole and safe, and to also, I'll say this, to keep us honest with one another and accountable right. to each other, which is another piece of not being in beloved community is all the ways in which things happen and people do things, and we are both people too, you and I, um, that uh, maybe are not of God or are not right. We make mistakes. We're all human. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, we Mm -hmm. need to have people who love us enough to to hold us, uh, hold our so-called feet to the fire to to make us accountable with one another. And and that's one of the things Mm -hmm. I wanted to say, John, is that you and I have been doing that, I think, Ever since mm-hmm. we got to be friends, we are not afraid to say to each other, Tom, I think you're wrong about that. <laughs> or, Tom, there's another point of view you might want to hear. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I have to honestly say it's been an absolute, you know, because there's been times when I say, Tom, you know, what do you think of this? And, you, and you, mm-hmm. you know, you'll tell me quite honestly, uh, no, John, I don't think you need to go that way. And, and we'll flesh it out. Yeah. But, you know, going back to what you said about, community uh, starting with two people. I think, you know, I, and I, maybe it has to do with my age, but as I think about all the various divisions mm. that there are 
in our country alone, let alone the world. But mm -hmm. I think we, as a human species, have gotten so far out there that all the things that we're fighting about, if we lose them, if we, if our point of view is, does not prevail, regardless of which side you're on, if we don't recognize what we're doing to humanity, yes. uh, you know, and I, you know, I think there's a great day of reckoning coming uh, if we don't do that. Uh, you know, the trends are not, they're, they're not good. I mean, people to people, without regard to the race or anything, there's just, there's something that is, that is being lost that you cannot regain and money cannot buy back. No. And no force money. cannot buy back either. Right. It's something far more valuable than that. You know that um, I'm thinking again about that gospel passage where Jesus says, let the little child come to me. Don't keep children from me. Um, mm -hmm. And how children so often teach us how to be in community because they demand our attention especially when mm -hmm. we don't think we have the time to give them our mm -hmm. attention. And, um, you know, I, I am a, a grandfather by marriage. I have two children, and I have six grandchildren by marriage. Um, mm -hmm. And I am just so grateful uh, in my life to have learned both how to be a parent and a grandparent, mm -hmm. but also mm -hmm. how to uh, learn to listen to children when they have something mm -hmm. to teach me and to say to me. And um, one of the things I yeah. wanted to mention uh, mm -hmm. about uh, being a child of God, because that's another expression that we do here often, a child mm -hmm. of God. Our own bishop mm -hmm. says, I am Bishop Phoebe Rofe. I am a child of God. I, that's one of the first things I heard her say after she became our bishop. And mm -hmm. so, but, but to be a child of God means, of course, that as someone in their 70s, which both of us share, um, mm -hmm. we are still children of God. And mm -hmm. so there are still some things that we need to be able to do that are childlike, you know, not childish, but childlike. And mm -hmm. um, I, I want, I, I'm gonna share something with you that I do, um, and I'm gonna cool. ask you to share something with me that you might still do, even after all mm -hmm. these years. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things I love to do is is to play with words. And I first started doing this uh, as a child, and I really got into it as a teenager. Um, mm -hmm. Puns and uh, taking old songs and rewriting them with new words. And um, uh, I, I'm hoping I won't offend my Jewish sisters and brothers right now, but I used to hang out with a lot of... Uh, friends in high school who were Jewish. And um, I used to try out some of my new songs with them, Christmas songs, but they were Hanukkah songs, I said. And one of them was matzah balls, matzah balls, matzah all the way, which is jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. And they would laugh. Mm -hmm. And I'm mm -hmm. glad they laughed because I wasn't sure if it was okay. But my point is that we have to be playful as adults. Mm -hmm. Because that's part of what it means to be a child of God, is to be able to play and to create and imagine. Mm -hmm. So I'm mm -hmm. wondering if there's something you still do that you used to do uh, when you were very young. Oh, wow. Um, hadn't thought about that one. Uh, you know, probably, you know, as I told you, I grew up out in the country. And as a child, uh, and during the summer months, as I, you know, I had my cousins there with me, but they moved away 
when we were all still fairly young. And so I had a lot of time alone. And as I told you, we lived out in the country and I had a lot of time, spent a lot of time in the woods. And one of the things that I learned to do that I even share with my grandchildren uh, or my children rather when they were younger is that I, as I told you, I whistled. In fact, I learned, I, I would walk through the woods um, and I would hear the birds and I could literally mimic uh, the sounds of the various birds that I heard. I mean, good enough wow. that the birds actually responded. Uh, <laughs> and even to this day, I still have a love of listening to uh, birds. I can't whistle quite as good as I did then, <laughs> but that ability to do that, I, uh, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm on Sanibel Island uh, and I, I love photography. Uh, and I've taken a lot of pictures, uh, and I was fortunate one day to have my camera aimed up on an osprey nest. Mm. And without realizing it, the male osprey came in, I guess, dropped some food and took right off again. And I had my camera set on, uh, just rapid, rapid, rapid fire. And I caught that. Mm. Um, wow. But that's, but I, I, and I think it's probably when I need to reconnect, uh, communing with nature, uh, especially with birds. I'm not a bird watcher per se, but but just being in nature and mm. and mm. that's probably the thing that, you know, when I need to center myself, you know, my wife tells me all the time, you know, you you don't take enough pictures of people. You take pictures of nature. Well, you know, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> John, I feel like you should know that you can't toss out that kind of uh, fun fact on a radio show without being prepared to to do a little bit of a demonstration. Just just throwing that out there. <laughs> John, I take no credit oh, or responsibility I, for know, what I was really, just said. <laughs> I'm in the process of having some dental work done now, so I can't that, that, quite. That's really convenient. That's the most really convenient dental work ever. <laughs> well, the next time you're on Faithfully Memphis, John, I be will, prepared to I whistle. Will do that. <laughs> I will be prepared to do that. I love it. Oh, my gosh. Well, speaking of playfulness and uh, wordplay and children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a, a piece of, uh, it's poetic because it's mm -hmm. part of a song. And I believe all songs uh, written with words are poetry set to music. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a piece of this song that I want to read as a kind of an excerpt as a poem. We're going to okay. hear the song later on. But it comes from a musical called Into the Woods, written, uh, the music and, uh, and words to the music, the lyrics, were written by Stephen Sondheim, who died a few weeks ago at the age of 91. And, uh, of course, he's famous for many, many musicals. And uh, mm -hmm. I want to say more about him in a moment. But I want to read these words. And then I want to say a few words about Stephen Sondheim. And I think you'll see the connection. We talked about him a little bit yesterday. I think you'll see the mm -hmm. connection with uh, children and uh, playfulness. So the words are these. Careful the things you say. Children will listen. Careful the things you do. Children will see and learn. Guide them along the way. Children will glisten. Children will look to you for which way to turn to learn what to be. 
careful before you say, listen to me. Children will listen. And uh, so this, this song is part of a musical that puts together all kinds of familiar fairy tales in one story. I'll say more about that in a moment. It's very creative in terms of putting, uh, putting that together. But I want to say a few words about Stephen Sondheim. Um, and, and this comes from an article written about him after his death. Uh, as a mentor, as a letter writer, he would write letters to all of these budding artists on Broadway and say, you really crashed it last night. You really spoke to me. Um, you made me realize why I do theater and sign his name. And he did this for decades. So mm -hmm. as a mentor, as a letter writer, as an audience member, he would just show up at people's plays and they wouldn't even know it. Uh, mm -hmm. Witnessing their new work, Sondheim, Sondheim quietly, faithfully nurtured generations of theater makers and theater goers. No one else, this article says, can yet step into his shoes. We nonetheless could, both artists and audience members alike, seek to borrow from his example. And here it is. This sounds like being a child in a way. By being adventurous, by being generous, children really are generous in the beginning until they learn how not to be. <laughs> yeah. And by showing up, all of a sudden, here's this kid, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. he didn't, and by the way, he did not have biological children. His parents divorced when he was 10, and the great Oscar Hammerstein ended up as his surrogate father. That's where he learned so much about theater. But he had mm -hmm. no biological children, but there are so many people who say, he was my, like my father, because... He understood that children will listen. He got that right. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering who some of your mentors and encouragers and audience members have been. Well, uh, you know, I think um, outside of the immediate family, I'll come back to them in just a second. Uh, you know, you played at the beginning of this, you played the song by Paul Robeson as yes. a child. As a black child growing up in a in a rural area, uh, certainly we you know we were poor. We didn't know we were poor because we always had enough food to eat and shelter. Uh, but the family uh, talked about Paul Robeson. He was this giant figure. He was a very important figure, uh, and so he was one of the ones that he was the image that I clung to uh, as I learned more about him. And of course, when I got to later life, uh, I, he became even more important to me about who he was and what he did. Although you don't hear a great deal about him today, and I think I understand the reasons for that. Uh, but, but certainly as an outside figure, he was the one, um, as I say, growing up out in the country like that. Uh, mm -hmm. Sports figures as such never never really ranked that 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 big in my mind. But then, you know, but as we talk about, uh, there's a lot of talk today about uh, entertainment figures and athletic yes. figures and celebrities like that being yep. celebrities being role models. For me, my role models uh, out were, were, were my grandfather, were the men in my community, was my family. 
uh, that they, and, and the one thing I got from them more than anything else was a sense of taking care, a, a sense of community and a sense of taking care of the family. And I remember mm-hmm. the community that we lived in, everybody helped everybody else out. And I was thinking about that earlier this morning as I knew we were going to be talking somewhat about that on this program and thought, I'm not quite sure, and I think it probably is applicable across the board. The way we lived in times gone by uh, probably required our survival of all of us, regardless of who you are, required a little bit more community involvement than we have today. Um, you know, there's a there's a song that I told you about yesterday by Arthur Prysock yes. called, uh, and I sent it to you last night, called uh, A Working Man's Prayer. And I think about the lyrics of that song and how he goes on to talk about how he helped a neighbor, what they didn't have or what he was able to do. And I think, well, you know, we don't have neighbors that can't get their crops in the field because the crops today are almost digitally automated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, there's a significant difference in the needs that we have for each other in those kinds of ways. And so I think, you know, I don't know that we, we need to stop and pause because uh, we still need each other. Yes. But the ways that we traditionally needed each other, the ways that we traditionally demonstrated community, that's all changed. But going back to who my um, role models were, as I said, it was my uncles, it was my grandfather, it was my father. These were the people who instilled the values in me of taking care of your family, of taking care of being in community. Mm. uh, you know, it wasn't the, the, the sports because although, I mean, you know, there was other names that we knew about, but but that's probably where that was. And I think Paul Robeson's work, if you look at some of his conversations, uh, his humanity and his yes. and, and what it meant to be of African descent hmm. um, in a way that we don't really talk about today. But that's 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 who it would have been for me back then. And, uh, and let me say something. Let me go back to something else you mentioned sure. a moment ago. You talked about uh, children, that point that the slides you read, children will listen, children will learn. And you reminded me of something I very much wanted to share. I have um, I have a lot of nieces and nephews. As, as I said, my wife, it was 18 of them. And, and you know, and I dearly love every one of my nieces and nephews. But one of them in particular, you know, as, as my family was, my children were growing up, we had a house in Atlanta. And as I said, I always loved music. Well, about... I guess, I don't know, six or seven years ago, one of my nieces, obviously grown now, I mean, with grown children, but she said to me, she said, you know, Uncle John, anytime we came over to your house, there was always music and there was always food. And I thought, <laughs> you know what? She is absolutely right. I had literally forgotten just how much I used to play music all the time. And mm. since she said that, uh, almost daily, we turn the TV off and we go to either Pandora or one of the other streaming music stations yes. and just let it run all day. And the day just goes so much better than listening to the news media. Um, oh but, but that thing about children will listen and children will learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she just reminded me of what that was. You know, and my kids remind me every now and then that, Dad, you know, you drug us out to these. Uh, parks or musical concerts, and I think, you know, the simplicity of life, just don't let it get complicated. Continue to be like a child. Yes, and (laughs) so that's the other thing that is not surprising we have in common, and that is, in addition to poetry, uh, we love music, and uh, we're going to hear a piece of music in a a moment that I uh, read the 
some of the words to the Children Will Listen song. But before mm -hmm. we do, I want to just mention one other thing, and that mm -hmm. is um, mentors, encouragers, uh, even audience members, people who show up. John, you showed up once uh, when I was preaching somewhere, oh, and yeah. you didn't have to, but you did. And it meant the world to me to have you there. I was, in a, I was a guest preacher in a church that I am not all that familiar with, and I needed to see some friendly faces in in the, <laughs> the in the group there, and you you were one of them. And I'm so I just I thought about this after we talked yesterday. I wanted to say thank you again for just showing up. I mean, it's just like Stephen Sondheim is known for, uh, just being there in the audience, if you will. But the other thing I want to say is role models, mentors. Another way of thinking about this for me, um, I've been saying for quite a while. You can't have too many mothers and fathers in this life or grandmothers or grandfathers or <laughs> aunts or uncles or children for that matter. And um, mm. one of the things I like to think about a lot is who are those other mothers and other fathers and sisters and brothers? And you know that I've said to you more than once, mm -hmm. you're, the, you're the older brother I never had. <laughs> And okay. that may feel like a lot of responsibility, John, but don't take it as responsibility. It's a gift for me well, to be you. able to say, there's somebody in my life who's a few, as you like to say, has made a few more trips around the sun than <laughs> I have. Now, just a few, but enough more yeah. that um, I am not afraid to go to and ask those hard questions or share those wonderful moments, uh, whatever yeah. they may be. And... And so I just wanted to say that publicly. Um, well, I, I said it privately, I, you know, but I wanted to say it publicly that you are like the older brother I never had. Well, you know, let me say, Tom, this has been an absolute 50 50 percent uh, um, helpful relationship because, you know, the, 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 I think one of the challenges and there people probably take exception to what I'm about to say. But I think one of the one of the really, really difficult challenges because of the history of the country is what it is in terms of race relations. Sometimes it is very difficult uh, coming out of, uh, and I'm not speaking of every African-American, but I think sometimes it's difficult for us in the African-American community to really understand what it's, what it, what it's like uh, to be, to grow up, you know, as you did as mm. a young white child to mm -hmm. be in that, to be, a, you know, what, you know, what is that really, really like? I mean, you can't clearly, you can't look at everybody, you can't look at all white people and say, well, yeah, all of them were racist, all of them were this or all of them were that. They had the challenge just like everybody else did, but right. it was a different kind of challenge. And so yep. the one the one really, really uh, benefit that I've gotten out of this relationship is to begin to look and understand from someone else's eyes who were not a part, for one of a better expression, a part of an, of an, an oppressed minority. Mm -hmm but just began to make your way into the humanity of that and what that was like. Uh, that's been very, very good for me. Uh, you know, as mm. you often said, I'm a work in progress. Well, I think we're yeah. all works in progress. Amen. Uh, and, and, and I guess to really make progress, you have to admit your vulnerability. Mm. Uh, both of us do, uh, yes. you know, I'm vulnerable, I'm vulnerable on this or you're vulnerable on that, mm -hmm. but it is in admitting, and understanding your vulnerability and understanding 
uh, being able to look at the world through other people's eyes doesn't change your position. Right. If anything, it better informs where you are and what needs to take place next is kind of the way I see that. And everybody may not agree with that, but that's kind of how I see it. Well, um, John, you and I are on the same page, I think, about that and a lot of other things. Um, and I'm so grateful for this time together. We're coming into the f uh, final minutes of our hour. And um, I, I do want to, um, I said to Emily before we started that I thought it might be good for her to say a word. And maybe mm -hmm. she didn't hear it that way from me, but I'm asking Emily, uh, this is that season yeah. when we, uh, the vulnerability of human beings can be uh, excruciatingly painful for some who don't have a beloved community. Yeah. And yeah. say something, uh, Emily, about what you know is available or going on well, about that. Tom, you know, I, I, I'm a mom. I have a child who is very much in the throes of uh, the Advent season right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And, and what I've been doing in my sort of quiet morning reflection is thinking about um, thinking through Advent and what I'm and, and really kind of immersing myself in the spirit of this season. And the thing that I am most struck by this year, and, and I don't I don't know why this has been what I'm zeroing in on, is that we're in a period of expectancy and this is a quiet this should be a quiet time. Mm. This should be a time where we kind of feel comfort to look inward. And and for me that's so antithetical to mm. what this Christmas season is. This mm. is a time where we are spread extremely thin. We are putting ourselves out there. We are laden with uh, just the, joy. We, we're supposed to feel joy, mm. right? Um, and in and and I think that one of the things that we all sort of know in our hearts, but. Uh, we don't talk about a lot is how this is a hard time Christmas and the Advent season this is a time where our culture is celebrating and we are have to get out and shop and we have to get out and see people and mm. and we have to put a smile on our face mm. when we don't necessarily um, feel that in our hearts and that can yeah. be really really painful um, so you know I I am grateful that there are churches in our faith community this is not specific to um, the episcopal churches in our area um, you can find a service for the longest night and it's these are services that are typically held um, usually around the winter solstice which i think this year is um, december the 21st but, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be that night. Uh, a lot of churches in our area are going to be holding these um, services for the longest night. And these are um, worship and prayer services where we, uh, where we honor that pain mm -hmm. and we honor mm -hmm. loss. And, you know, typically in the past, um, uh, my impression of 
services for the longest night is it's okay well it's a time for us to come and remember those that we've lost in the last year and it's it's a loss of a person in our lives but you know I, I'm, I'm on staff um, at Church of the Holy Communion and we were in, in our staff meeting a few uh, a little while ago talking through this and it seemed not totally embodying the fullness of that loss if we make it specific to losing a person you know in the last couple years um we've lost a lot uh Mm. there's a lot of pain Mm. and it's not specific to having there's a lot of different griefs that we're holding yes there is is. and so church of the holy communion is um and i you know i'm i should remember the date but you can go on our website, uh, holycommunion.org, and find the date. Um, we're holding a, and we've changed the verbiage a little bit, to a service for longest nights. And this mm. is a time where we honor that this is a fraught time. This is a hard time. And it's, and it's a safe space to um, be held and loved mm. um, and uh, pray through it with people who care about you and uh there are lots of other churches um, and faith communities here in memphis that are going to be offering those and i encourage folks to uh you know fire up the old google and and find if if you're if you want to pray through something if you want to be held in your in uh your grief Mm. um this is a space for you to do it emily i'm so glad i asked you to say something about this and um uh, those of us in Memphis know that there is a song that a certain star once sang called Blue Christmas. Mm. And, yeah. uh, but, but people can be blue and in grief on any day mm. in any season. So uh, thanks for that specific reminder. And I know that you also have ways to get the word out about yeah. all the other things mm-hmm. that could be available um, I'm going to send you a couple of things, as a matter of yeah. fact, you may not know about. Yeah, and so. um, and if uh, if every week we send out a email, an e-blast from uh, the Diocese of West Tennessee about ways that you can get involved in our faith communities, but also really great opportunities to get involved in Memphis. Um, mm. And mm. Uh, you can go to our website, edwtn.org, and uh, subscribe to that if you're not already on that list. Wonderful. And well, Tom, this is John. Let me just yes. very quickly express my appreciation to you and to Bishop Peavy for allowing me to be a part of Faithfully Memphis. I sincerely appreciate that mm. uh, and wish all of you the very best of the holiday season. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. 